Welcome to Amplify Archaeology. We're here today in Feathered in South County Tipperary and I'm here with Gary Dempsey and all the power of Digital Heritage Age and we're going to talk a little bit about digital heritage and how it can help us understand the past better and, and the new recording techniques that are coming into archaeology much more. But to begin with Gary, could you explain a little bit about digital heritage? What does it actually mean and how does it work? Well, it's, it's quite a broad topic. Uh, mm -hmm. It includes current documents that are born digitally that mm -hmm. we will preserve in the future as heritage documents. Okay. But it also includes recording historical documents using digital methods. So you could look at something like the Celt Project, which began back in UCC, was one of the first websites, but that would be digital heritage, digitally yeah. presenting the historical texts of Ireland to the public. Or something like we do, where we will actually go out and we will laser scan and use photogrammetry methods to digitally record uh, heritage artifacts. Okay. So they're the two main areas, but like I say, it can be quite broad, and there's a lot of different ideas and theories about what digital heritage is. We're quite lucky now in that we're in a period where there is a declaration on digitizing cultural heritage sure. and there's a list of things that Ireland as a group have to meet. So we have to be able to train people in digitizing, whether that's digitizing text or digitizing heritage artifacts. Mm -hmm. And we have to be able to make that open source or at least accessible to the public in some yeah. way uh, using digital methods. So anything that's online, uh, anything that is in a digital archive, so things like the catalogues of the books inside mm -hmm. the National Library could be classified as digital heritage. It's a digital catalogue of the real catalogue, if you I, like. I get you, okay. So it's a very broad and kind of all-encompassing yeah. term, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. And Ola, could you tell us a little bit about Digital Heritage Age then? What is it that you kind of focus on? What was the origins of the project? How does it so come to be? Digital Heritage Age actually began after I met Gary at a citizen science project that he organised in Roscommon. So that was kind of the very first citizen science project of the time mm. that focused on training community members in how to use 3D recording technologies yeah. to record commemorative stone monuments. <laughs> so he actually trained me in photogrammetry formally, so that's actually, I blame him for getting involved in it. <laughs> but um, after that, we kind of kept in contact for a few years and we effectively created Digital Heritage Age out of that because we yeah. felt that there really was not a gap in the market as such but a, there was definitely a need for this kind of recording to be brought into communities and yeah. to train communities up in, in utilizing it in an open and accessible way mm -hmm. so that's really how digital heritage age was conceived of um so and, but it's not strictly myself and gary that do it it's actually a range of digital heritage specialists that okay. operate under the same banner i suppose yeah, um and that was our focus really was just to train communities and to give them the tools and the skills to go out and to really curate their own digital collections because yeah. you know I mean with heritage in Ireland there's so much out there that we can't necessarily fund everything we'd like to exactly and this is a great yeah. way of giving them um, the ability to do it that's that's brilliant and I think that you know that's really an important thing for archaeology going mm, forward is yeah. getting people to to be able to have these skill sets and yeah, things like absolutely. that to be able to go out and contribute in their own ways to yeah. heritage as well and could you along those lines in the great community work that you do could you perhaps tell us a little about the digital counties initiative how do different communities get involved in that work so the digital counties initiative grew from that initial project in roscommon mm -hmm. um that had a big grandiose name of the roscommon cross lab project okay uh, and it was kind of something for me to do when i came back from scotland with after being trained in digital heritage skills yeah. um after that i i moved back to galway where i'd been living before and i yeah. set up another project there mm -hmm. and as projects began to roll out we realized that we were giving community groups these skills and leaving behind networks yeah. that had digital heritage skills so we've worked mm -hmm. with some fantastic uh, groups one mm -hmm. particular group in Cavan the Moybelog uh, yeah. Historical Society yeah um, Brian has been fantastic so when we we did the training there we looked at um, uh, an early cross slab with a, an inscription on us mm -hmm. and through the work that we did and recording that Brian did we were able to reach out to uh, lecturers in, in Maynooth University who were able to tell us some of the history and heritage behind that recording and since then Brian's 
discovered other stones and used mm. digital methods to record. That's and because fantastic. we're using those digital methods, mm -hmm. um, we're able to then email that directly on to those lecturers again. So uh, David Stifter is, is one that we've been dealing with, with quite yeah. a lot. And he's been so helpful with his time coming back yeah. and saying, oh, that's really interesting. I can, now, like, I can link out to this. Um, text or that this this name occurs in these several texts and they're all from these local areas so it's this kind of wonderful network that we're leaving behind and I think once we realize that and mm. that we were able to give communities empowerment yeah that that's where the digital counties initiative began um, we've done a couple of other projects we did one in Donegal uh -huh. and that was more kind of inclusive but we still include that within the digital counties yes. initiative yeah, yeah. Um, and then so between small projects we do ourselves mm -hmm. and community group training that we'll do mm -hmm. that's the kind of an over-encompassing mission statement if you like of and that's fantastic and I suppose for the communities is there a lot of to do this digital recording is there a lot of expensive equipment you know what sort of gear can you do this with well with photogrammetry the way it's actually come on you can do it with quite inexpensive equipment so i mean you can really create 3d models with your phone now and we've seen some unbelievable work wow. being done by people in the area just using iphones and creating yeah. textures from that but That's basically a, a digital camera and yeah, the okay. software is probably the most expensive part of it but actually yeah. you can get open source software that processes the photo uh, the photography that you actually or the photographic sequence that you have yeah okay so generally speaking relatively inexpensive for communities to invest in which is really important which is yeah, yeah because yeah, yeah. you know yourself with funding it's it's not something you, <laughs> no, you want to be on no, <laughs> unfortunately not no um, and that I suppose really helps it to, to grow quickly then doesn't it and yeah. if it doesn't need that kind of, you know, high price uh, specialist gear. Um, so, with the, um, why would you say that digital recording, particularly photogrammetry and things like that, why do you think uh, recording these features uh, today is important? Is it rather than just say I, I still photograph? Mm. What benefits does that bring? Does it help with things like being able to monitor for conservation, for weathering, Absolutely. things like that? Yeah. Yeah, so a number of different reasons. So uh, we were just at Kiltannan sh Church just outside Fetter mm. here where uh, a carving had gone missing back in the mid-90s. Oh. And even with the local community, we weren't able to pinpoint where that original carving had been. There's, there's yeah. ivy growing up on the church now. Uh -huh. So even with the photographs that were existing, we weren't able to pinpoint that. But a digital scan of that church uh -huh. would have been able to pinpoint exactly where it was. Okay. So... There's a couple of reasons we like to do it. It, it mm. creates a permanent record, an open access record that the public yeah. can see. Mm -hmm. It's not a flat 2D image, so you can yes. actually see the detail in particular carvings. Yeah. Um, and then there's the, the, the kind of the longevity of that. So, so mm. the digital record exists in the public and can be used for other items. Yeah. So okay. like the, the carving, we, or the, the Madonna you oh, yeah, laser scanned. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah, so I suppose uh, to add on to what Gary was saying there, um, as a methodology, it's brilliant as well because it's a very non-invasive process. So you're not yeah. really handling the objects yes, yes. in any great amount. So, I mean, in yeah. that way, it's a brilliant way of recording things mm. and it kind of puts to the side any fears of it being damaged during that process. Um, so for that Madonna yeah. in particular, really nobody ever gets to see behind the glass with certain artifacts. And yeah. that's the problem, I think, with heritage, yeah. that people feel maybe they're at a remove from it. Yeah, there's so barriers, be, yeah. And this is it. And I think yeah. also in terms of maybe just geographical barriers, you're not always going to get access to heritage, that's whereas well. 3D models go a really long way in terms of engaging with people who may never get to come in and maybe see the Ohm Stone in a museum or see the Madonna yeah. in Galway as, as anyone else has. Yeah. Yeah. And things like 3D printing? Yeah, so it's something that, that we've, we've delved into, again, with that, with that Madonna. So it's mm. the Clonfort Madonna that we recorded. It was uh -huh. part of a larger uh, medieval wooden carvings of Madonna figures from Galway that we recorded. Yes. And we did 3D print that. It was, it was something we actually invested in. We got a nice expensive print. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I have a, a very cheap 3D printer in the office. It cost uh -huh. me less than 200 euros. Oh, wow. Um, okay. One of these kind of uh, put-it-together-yourself jobs. Yeah, yeah. And I've printed out some of the, the nicer scans that I have. Some of the like yeah. so what we would call a solid 3d model is mm. something that you could pick up and would actually feel or look like the original yeah. what wouldn't be solid would just be the face of an object so there'd be no gotcha. back okay. to it yeah um you mentioned as well weathering so we have mm -hmm. recently done a project in galway city with the heritage officer mm -hmm. there jim higgins um mm -hmm. 
and the the scope of the project was to look at the biodeterioration of stone okay. so there's things like lichen growth how climate yeah. effects will uh, affect different lichen and different species of lichen and then mm. how that will lead to discoloration on the stone and how smog can lead to discoloration on the stone also things like um spalling the very small cracking that you get in the stone okay so, and this all like if if we have a particular climate in a city yeah then particular lichen will grow then mm. water will gather around the lichen and then that water will freeze which will then cause cracks in the stone okay with photogrammetry okay. we're certainly able to map all the cracks so obviously we yeah. did this survey this summer we can say in 2019 this is how it was this exactly. is how it was yeah. we can come back and what we suggested is that we'll go back within five years uh -huh. and that we'll record those uh, stones again and we'll examine if if it's, changing yeah. the the mortar around them if, if changing the pointing around the stone uh -huh. made any difference is there more spalling is there less detail yeah. like just the faded stone is that there so yeah. it's it's in its early stages you've looked yeah. at a little bit more of what else is out there but i think mm. it is in its early stages how much photogrammetry can help yeah but yeah. we do think it will so well definitely well certainly with 3d modeling and photogrammetry and laser scanning the thing to remember with it is you're creating an extremely detailed scalable model yeah so yeah. when you're creating that 3d model every point within it is yeah. is measured uh -huh. so you're actually able to so if we were to survey now and survey in 10 years mm. you can really chart um the rate of decay within an area the rate mm -hmm. of collapse and subsidence and they are doing that work as well um, the discovery program i know is doing it out in skellig michaels so yes, absolutely. they have a program of um assessment and recording to actually yeah. chart that weathering and well, to see when intervention is necessary really exactly it's such a useful thing to have a baseline oh, to, yeah. to see and, and you know it's always a shame when certain stone uh, carvings or yeah, objects, yeah. the discussion happens then, do you take it out of, you know, it, I, its conditions? I'm a conditions. firm believer in leaving it outside. People <laughs> yeah. disagree with me on this, but I'm very of the, with archaeology, I suppose, yeah. when you when you study it long enough, you realise that it's it's not a static thing. No, it's archaeological yeah. landscape is always changing. The perception of it, the engagement of it within communities over time changes. Uh -huh. Even so far as the sheathing of gigs, the attitude towards those have changed as yes, well, and they've absolutely. been appropriated into different ideas and uh, political opinions. Mm -hmm. But nothing is static, so it's no. almost, we can only conserve so much, but then the question is, are you really really experiencing the true aura of an object if you're removing yeah. it from its original location. I remember that one of the very first lessons, I think it was the, the very first day of class uh -huh. uh, when Paul Gosling was teaching us archaeology and he said that the uh -huh. one thing you should remember is archaeology is destructive. Yes. Uh, yeah. It can be very scientific and we can yeah. repeat processes as we go along but mm. the moment you dig a site or the moment you remove something from its original setting you lose it's all the context absolutely. and context is the most important thing to an archaeologist yeah. uh, absolutely um, so it's it's a way uh, like I, I think I was saying earlier on mm. that we can use photogrammetry during an excavation yeah. and you can find say a waterlogged um, piece of wood yeah. and that piece of wood has certain context must farm is a brilliant example of this yeah, in England absolutely, yeah. where the horse hoof prints are going through the site and they yeah. used photogrammetry to record this with yeah. context labels inside of that image yeah and you can go back and you can notice new things again and again and again so mm. us taking a photograph of that site there might be limited scope of what we can see there but the photogrammetry yeah. allows you to go back because you can rotate it yeah and consider it in, in its three dimension really um, and also you're not limited by lighting and environmental factors that yes. photography really is limited by in some in some well, aspects well that's the thing and, and it's it's incredible to see how quickly it's progressed. I remember uh, I, I was very lucky. I, I excavated a beautifully preserved early medieval mill in, um, it was in County Roscommon actually, yes. in Kilbegley. Kilbegley. Um, I've been there, we've done a survey there. <laughs> <laughs> but um, with that site, we, I wanted to, if photogrammetry would have existed at the time, that would have been yeah. the perfect recording method because you have all the timbers laid out as they were mm -hmm. and getting a 2D plan wasn't it's quite enough. Not the same. <laughs> so I was trying to do it by taking points with GPSs and things like that. And even then, it doesn't 
it doesn't have the subtlety and the textures of, of photogrammetry. You do miss so. an element of it. You, you there's do. definitely times when I, I look back at old excavations and I think, especially for kilns, because I'm obsessed with quarantine yeah. kilns, but I just look at them and think, God, if we only had photogrammetry now, it would have been beautiful to see them, especially the stone-lined examples and record yeah, those. And absolutely. That's Even when it. you mentioned the Discovery Programme earlier yeah. there, so mm. when a lot of our models are on a website called Sketchfab. Yes. Uh, the Discovery Programme put all their 3D icons projects, the Ohm Stone project, the Ohm yeah. 3D project, an amazing project oh, as well. They're huge. all up there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, one of the things that they did was they took historical photos. I think they're from the Leo Swan collection. Yeah. And they uh, have now been excavated. So you can have wow. a, a 3D model of Nout while they were excavating us mm. years ago. So the, yeah. the, what we can do with those skills yes. okay. is, is worthwhile sharing them with the community, uh, either the community of archaeologists or the community of heritage at yeah. large. So. Yeah. And what are the key challenges? I, I mean, as is a discipline that's, you know, exponentially kind of increasing in possibilities with what you can do and everything. Are, are the kind of the key barriers to it? Are, are there particular challenges that you have to face? Um, for me, I think looking long term when we create 3D models, it's actually mm. the long term conservation of those 3D models. Where do we put them? So all of the projects okay. we do, we tend to conserve them ourselves. Yeah. We have our own yeah. repository, but that can only go on so long until maybe there is a facility at state level where we can actually start depositing these models as well because it is it, it's huge. state record, essentially. It, yeah. you know? I, I mean, like any digital file, I mean, ourselves, we must have way yeah. over 100,000 images at heritage sites. And, and you think, God, where do you, yeah. what happens? You know, where, where does it go if Dropbox disappears? <laughs> what do I do, you know, yeah. What so, happens then? So we're, we're lucky enough in Ireland that we have, like I think the Discovery Programme have done a, a paper on this and, yeah. and a, quite a large research on it. The TIR are, are mm. very much leading the way national monuments yeah. through that EU declaration uh, they'll be leading the way and the National yeah. Museum have been getting involved as well so That's I know that terrific. we'll be having a panel discussion in a couple of weeks time where we get groups uh, representatives of those groups together yeah. Yeah. to discuss this because two of the biggest issues like Orla said is uh, how do we preserve this into the future and where do we preserve it yeah. um, but also how do we fund that? Yeah. Yes. Uh, and yes. there's things like the... It needs curation. It needs yeah. active yeah. management. Yeah. So there is a digital repository of Ireland. I yes. think that's yeah. uh, part of the RIA or come out of the RIA, yeah. uh, which is a very good move towards where we want to be. Yeah. But we do need something at state level. And yeah. again, because of this declaration, I think there is a lot of movement towards that. Mm -hmm. And I've heard a lot of great things being talked about. Yeah. So I do see... Maybe the wheels are turning, yeah, for sure. Yeah, um, yeah. It's just, I suppose we're always like, we want it now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It'd be so, brilliant if we could have so. it. But. And that's the thing as well. I mean, it is, I, I suppose, I, as I say, I see it with photography a little bit. Yeah. As the resolution increases, the file size increases. and bigger and bigger. And with 3D models, they're exactly, always quite yeah. large. And it, it's kind of an exponential kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but going back to the work itself and the fun bit, uh, Gary, I know you're a proud Roscommon man. You mentioned it once or twice. Well, uh, to him. I know you've been working for a long time on a, a really exciting landscape uh, survey of Rathcrohan. Yeah, so... Uh, can you tell us a bit more about how kind of digital techniques inform that survey? How, how are you getting... I mean, that's, that's um, a site that's well known in archaeological cir uh, circles, so... How are these digital techniques kind of providing new insights into uh, Rathcrotton and the large complex around there? Yeah, so the, the Rathcrotton mm. landscape project that mm. was funded by the National Monument Service through the RIA mm -hmm. as part of a directed research grant on World Heritage Sites. And we were mm. lucky at that time mm -hmm. that Rathcrotton was on the tentative list from 2010. Uh, okay. So I think we got in there just enough time that the, the funding was available for us to do a survey. Mm -hmm. So looking at the options of what we could do, I thought, wouldn't it be fantastic if we um, gathered the catalogue of digital data that had been created for Rackrotten, the yeah. geo uh, geophysical surveys from NUI Galway, yes. even the paper-based, yeah. even images going right back to the 1940s, wow. some of my own family collection that we'd have, yeah. family photos where there's a monument in the background. <laughs> so we started collecting these things, and uh -huh. I thought, uh, because my, my father's family comes from Rackrotten, mm. I started to think about that human impact on the landscape. And yeah, what, what have yeah. we done 
as landowners? What have we done as people who farm that land? There's a really yeah. interesting project happening there at the moment, separate to Digital Heritage yeah. Age on farming in Rackrotten. That's right. But we did a very, very large-scale drone survey, so a, a UAV yeah. photogrammetry survey using um, Paul Nason's Western Aerial Survey. Yeah. And we recorded 14 square kilometres of the landscape up there. Jesus, that's huge. So yeah. it is. We yeah, haven't yeah. even managed to put the whole thing back together. <laughs> yeah, I was it's say, it's very big. Enormous. The project yeah. ended in... Yeah. yeah, the project ended officially. Our funding kind of ran out in, in 2017, yeah, okay. and I've just been working on it. Been yeah. very lucky. Uh, NUI Galway have been doing work in the background on Rackrotten Mound. Right, some okay. really interesting stuff. I'll talk to you again about. Yeah, Plus, brilliant. The idea, the idea was that we could record the landscape and we could find where people had impacted us. Yeah, okay. And that's from modern farming practices right yeah. back to uh, farming practice. We, we think we've definitely found a settlement site from mm. the 1700s that um, Niall Brady and Brian Shanahan have written about before. Yeah. We can definitely think, we can say we, those people were there, definitely. Yeah. Um, but we've also found, I, I, I want to say, three new barrows, mm. m- potential maybe five or six uh, moated sites in, mu- in the much larger area. Wow. We were very lucky that the GSI had uh, LIDAR for oh, okay. half of County Roscommon. So okay, we got good. access to that through their free viewer yeah. online, yes. downloaded all the data, and things mm. just started popping out. But mm. if you take the core area of Rackrotten, we added something like 20 or 30 monuments that we can definitely say that's a feature. Yes, we have brilliant. a further 50 to 70 monuments which we go we're going to need to stand in the field and see what that is it yeah, looks very yeah, interesting yeah, plausible yeah. Um, and then the data for Rackrotten Mound itself is now exponential that we can go back and use the historical data yeah. from NUI Galway and even their student projects that were happening in 2010 mm-hmm. that we're able to now go back and reprocess their work and yeah, figure yeah. out an awful lot more uh, about it's, the mound but I know Orla is looking very bored of me talking about <laughs> Roscommon <laughs> <laughs> so, my passion my, project most of my time working with Gary is me listening to him talking about Roscommon being the <laughs> best good county subject. but it it's is I like, it's in, a lot of my like a lot of my research was conducted there it's where I learned yeah. most of my skill sets so I mean I do have a fondness for it as well oh uh, uh, no it's a lovely place as I said with Kilbegley before it's getting all the uh, it's getting all great graveyards great graveyards it really and that's where you know the cadaver stones kind yeah, of emerged yeah. from for me oh, so yes which was my my passion project was the cadaver motif in Ireland and uh, can you tell us a little bit more about these cadaver stones I'll come back to you on that. I'll do. I'll actually do a full one with you someday on them. But actually, they're oh, basically um, they're a commemorative stone monument. Mm. It's kind of a memento mori, but actually, the representation of the human form is a is a, an individual that's in decay. So yes. the body yeah. is corrupted, and yeah. you find them within um, a shroud. So the yeah. shroud encompasses them. It can be covering them. It can be mm. partially open. It can be fully yeah. open. Um, but in a lot of instances you're finding them covering their genitalia as well yeah. and you might find critters on them so you might find bugs and again it's just yeah. part of that narrative of decomposition uh, absolutely. and you know confronting death and reminding everyone that look death is coming so do well in this life before you pass into the next but I, I think my favourite one of them is uh, old St Peter's Church in Drada with uh, the, the, Drada husband the, oh, the husband and wife which actually yeah. that's a full so that was a tomb chest that's yes. the top stone okay. he has <laughs> so all of the stones surrounding that one are a composite piece from what I read anyway all of the other stones are the crests of his other wives oh really so apparently I'm actually pretty sure that's the case so it's uh, he managed to commemorate every one of them in in death so if you actually look at the full um there's actually a number of stones there, but predominantly yeah. there for him and his wives. That's unbelievable. But Drahada has, or the Inverans of Drahada have some of the, the best examples. So, you know, Bewley House, there's one there as well, which is absolutely stunning. Right, okay. Um, that's in, well, now with the second time I went back to look at it, it's actually been closed off. And there's another oh, one okay. in Stamullen as well. All right. Um, they're particularly, I think those two, Stamullen and Bewley, are quite interesting because yeah. there is quite a lot of decay going on in them and they're very, very graphic compared to the other examples that the, we have. They're a bit grisly. I love, you see, I, lo- I love it. <laughs> Just because they're so, we have like for such a big tradition that was in Europe. Um, yes, yeah. We only have a record of 11 in Ireland and of that I oh, think only nine of them are remaining. Um, okay. 
the biggest one or probably the most well-known one then is the, the Maddest Man which is in the Triscoll Christchurch in Cork that's right um, and then of course when I went to Roscommon I discovered when looking at a stone up there there was a, a cadaver motif which I had never known was a thing in Ireland where oh, okay. instead of having a huge uh, commemorative stone monument yeah. you have this small motif instead of a cadaver right. in a shroud that's and, really interesting uh, Mary uh, Timoney I think was the yeah, one to Mary discover all Timoney of these Mary Timoney has done some fantastic yeah. work on, yeah. on, yeah. on, on graveyards in yeah. Roscommon yeah. and yeah. Sly area as well so yeah uh, absolutely and the one in Watford City of course is oh that, sure it? look with I the mean, little that one frog <laughs> the little frog on him <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful I just it's it, they're all exceptional but they're all different but I mm-hmm. yeah I definitely I'd love to talk to you at a later date about them in detail but yeah, um, absolutely that'd be fantastic I apologise to everyone but they're going to be grisly but <laughs> it's going to be a grisly discussion but oh, that's okay we were talking about dismemberment yeah, at Karakiel uh, like sure, look, so <laughs> it just fits right it's great, in yeah, well this is it um, and leading on from that I suppose and going uh, uh, to so another graphic. sort of graphic <laughs> stone carving good segue <laughs> yeah, lovely one we're studying it, looking at uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. one of my favourite Sheila in the gigs. Under the shadow uh, of a Sheila in the gig, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, which I think is a fantastic one. And yeah. Can you tell us what are Sheila in the gigs? When roughly do they date <laughs> from? And there's all sorts of ideas about them, isn't there? So, what what do we know about them? And the, Very little. <laughs> Very the Sheila in the gig project that you've been doing to record them. Can you tell so, us a little about that too? Uh, okay, so the Sheila in a gig 3D project was effectively a multi-phase transdisciplinary project that me and Gary mm-hmm. um, came up with because we were looking for a manageable data set yes. of stones that could be analysed on a county by county basis. Yeah. But also that there wasn't really a lot of information known about and could really have benefited from 3D methodologies. So yeah, I think sure. up to the point at which we started 3D modelling hadn't been done on them yeah, okay. Um, and also they're quite enigmatic and they, they seem to be something different for every person so again yeah. going back to the idea of fluid representation in archaeological artefacts that's for me a prime example especially because it's the nude female form and attitudes to that have changed over time Yes. so yeah. we really wanted to try and basically record them in as high detailed a way as possible Absolutely. so that they were there yeah, for yeah. posterity because they're all well, for the most part, I'd say about 80% of them are out in, in the public, being That's weathered, subject to damage. I, and I would hazard a guess that the the only person to possibly visited the majority of them is Jack Roberts, Jack Roberts. who's, yeah. who's okay. written and drawn yeah. mm-hmm. a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and even, I think, because of the the difficulty in accessing some of them yes. uh, that would be in private ownership or they're in yeah. the museum, uh, mm. that by recording them we're giving the opportunity for everyone to view them and view yeah. them in one place together yeah. Yeah. They're, I say there are, there are no two Sheila's the same so yeah. you can we're standing here next to the one on the Watergate in Feathered uh-huh. and if we go round to the Abbey there's a very different style Yes. but yeah. if we sit down for long enough and we analyse the, the features we can mm. find very similar features so the way okay. the ears are if they have ears the way yeah. the um, the breasts are drooped from one side uh-huh. generally you'll find there's an asymmetry to the body okay. something is generally bigger or smaller okay. and this is across the range of Sheila and the gigs um, what's, what I find interesting about the we're in the, the kind of fettered area of mm-hmm. uh, South Tipperary so there's there's not a lot of connecting features between the different carvings they're yeah, vastly okay. dis- different but say Roscommon and Galway which were two of the first surveys we did mm-hmm. I very quickly started to say I bet you the person who carved this carving right. is the person who carved this carving. Okay. Uh, the okay. motifs were very similar. So uh-huh. uh, it, within five, ten miles of each other, the Sheilas were sticking their tongues out. Yeah, um, yeah. Within closer distances together, the Sheilas had hair. Yes. And these right. are things you don't find in the vast collection of Sheila in the gates. No, no. But the fact that... So I could say the Rahara Sheila, mm-hmm. um, the one we recently discovered in uh, East Galway, which was published in Archaeology Ireland last mm-hmm. year, uh, and the one just outside of Tume, mm-hmm. I, I would bet money that the same person carved them. Okay, so, that's I really interesting. We're beginning to see things that haven't been seen before. And it's been able to do that by yeah. by all the work that you've done, Benefit getting that database, I, I suppose. Yeah, Yeah, and I mean, I, I have to say, like Jack Roberts, I mean, his work really was probably the foundation of how we kind of put together the catalogue we have, because it right. was quite a seminal um, piece of work by him. And yeah really but looking at it I mean there's only so much you can really get I mean even standing at this direction if you were to draw one yes. you're not going to get all of the features whereas no, the 3D no, model will, will bring up and I mean yeah. sure if we were looking at authors descriptions of them 
there's the attitude that they were not really skilled masons when they were producing them, but we're finding quite the opposite is, yeah, is the case, especially because of the 3D um, modeling. You, you, you know? said this is your favorite. It's actually it's one, one of, yeah, one of yeah, my yeah. least favorite because oh. the, the term of Sheila and the Gig being grotesque is yeah. just sits out <laughs> in this this carving. Yeah, because um, it's almost like a cross between the cadaver uh, stones we were talking yeah. about earlier <laughs> yeah. and the Sheila. It's quite a gnarly. Yeah. So these, these are highly stylized, grotesque faces for, yeah. for lack of a better term, although yeah. I would just say contorted faces. Yeah. But there are some beautiful Sheila in the gigs. The okay. carving is immaculate. That one that we discovered in Galway, yes. again, it, it's published in, in Archaeology Ireland. It's on the cover and you can see the beautiful carving there. The, yeah, the tool yeah, work is amazing. Yeah. The face is, is quite, I wouldn't say pretty, but it, it, it is... Stylized. stylized and, and mm. there is an attempt to make something that people want to look at not look away from okay so we're okay. noticing these things about the shielding the gigs uh, yeah. you mentioned well, we both mentioned Jack Roberts there's mm. uh, Gabriel Cannon yeah. um, okay. so he's got the, the Ireland Shield the Gig website and he's yeah. been so helpful yeah. so if, if okay. there is a Sheila that's not quite well known or one that was rumoured to be in an area yeah, he's gone yeah. out and recorded that and that helps that's us fantastic. to add to the collection yes, um, yes. and also so. the broader narrative of them because the thing with the Sheila in a Gig catalogue not all of them are, are actually true Sheila in a Gigs they're you know exhibitionist figures uh -huh. but it still forms part of the broader the, narrative and dialogue yes. around what a Sheila in a Gig is and even yeah. down to what it is in local tradition and oral tradition yes, so his course. work in particular just recording rumours of a site is yeah. just as essential, I think, because it might be that something has survived in the oral tradition that okay. may not physically exist in the extant record. Well, so, you know... We're, uh, I suppose um, there's two questions. <laughs> I won't go straight <laughs> into <laughs> what... <laughs> Firstly, do we get many Sean Nagigs? <laughs> the, the many males? I know, I, I, I know there's a little carving in yeah. Kilcooley yeah. uh, yes. not too far away yes. from us here. Um, they're the, the, the Sean Nagig or the male figure. Mm -hmm. I think uh, it's it's actually nice to follow the National Monument Service definition. So exhibitionist mm. figure, which mm. all the males seem to be classified as exhibitionist, while mm. the majority of the female carvings are Sheila Nagigs. Mm. We do have Tipperary to thank mm. for the popularity of the term Sheila Nagig. Yes. We yeah. don't actually know what they were called before that. Okay. So. I, I personally prefer the term exhibitionist figure because it yeah. allows us to include the male figures it, it's alongside a the female yeah. figures. Yeah. And even within the female figures, they're they're not all overly sexualized. So yeah, yeah. They're the position of the hands is away from the body instead of towards the vulva. Yeah. So and also just by virtue of the fact that there's just breasts in a vulva that they would be perceived as sexualized. Yeah. You know, so yeah. it's just the nude form. And I think that idea of it being sexualized is more something that maybe we have placed on it in more modern contexts versus maybe versus what they would have been context. in medieval contexts because yeah. they were in churches. So this is the thing that most people find very surprising when we speak with them. Well, that's the interesting thing, isn't it? It's the locations that you find yeah. them and it's not necessarily where you'd they're think you'd find. They're very exposed, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. excuse the word, but <laughs> they're very <laughs> exposed. They're high visibility, yeah. direct like, eye line. I mean, that one there, I mean, you can just literally just see it. You know, it's not... A medieval route, isn't yeah. it? Straight in so, front of the gate. I mean, yeah. They're so. not hidden in any way, so no. it's... I, I have a, uh, a kind of rough working theory mm. that there is a Christian ideology behind these, or Christian symbolism, that we've now lost. And whether that mm. comes from a folk tradition within the Christian religion... Mm -hmm. I can't say or I don't have evidence for that or whether mm. it comes from some sort of stylistic carving. Uh, so if we think about the um, Romanesque carving where... Well, I was going to say, I mean, you, you do see these kind of um, exhibitionist or to some degree grotesque, if you want to call them yeah, that quite either. demonic uh, figures. Yeah, like, um, in Romanesque. Uh, there's a good example just inside the doorway at Timmer Hall. Uh, yes, yes. Is an interesting one. Uh, there's a lovely one at uh, Penman Priory in Anglesey. Okay. Um, I must send you all the pictures. <laughs> so, do at you some think point, we'll extend the survey across the. the yeah, Anglesey is a good starting yeah. point for it, for sure. Um, uh, but do you think that it could have started like coming in as part of like a fashionable, uh, with the Romanesque period, and much like what happened with Romanesque architecture? Irish masons and so on kind of made it their own and all of a sudden the Sheila kind of went off on a yeah. different tangent. I think here. there are many subclasses of Sheila that we could start classifying. Yeah, and, okay. and Barbara Fitek yeah. has, has gone some way to describing the way 
the the body is placed and she's she's yeah, kind okay. of done some catalogue work right. uh, Teresa Oakley as well has had a fantastic catalogue for her uh, uh-huh. was a PhD or she's got a bar yeah, series yeah so yeah. Um, okay. I think there's a lot of subclass that we can do one of the subclass that we should definitely research more is the acrobatic figure so we can yeah. definitely okay. say the acrobatic figure is definitely along the north of France in Spain yeah. that that tradition may be the origin of what we now call Shield and the Gig. Right. They're generally a lot smaller. We do find a few in Ireland. Um, uh-huh. Nuns Chapel yeah. in... Yeah, yeah that's oh, right. Yeah. On the so, chancel arch in there, yeah. Uh, there's those little... There, yeah, yeah. Sudon, uh, just outside of Athenry in County Galway. Uh-huh. Um, that's another acrobatic figure uh-huh. where the legs will be up around the back I think even uh, is a Bishop Wesley in Kildare yes he has on, one on right his on his tomb and, uh, and for a, a cheap you know very high ranking bishop yeah. to have one on the tomb and that's, that's much yeah. more an acrobatic figure than yeah. a Sheila in the gig so but, yeah. at the, the interesting thing for me is at what point do we migrate from that mm. to these very stylized carvings that yeah. we now see in places like Fehard yeah. that, that you have. Like the smallest one in Ireland is on um, Merlin Park Castle, which is a 17th century castle. Okay. So it's it's so late that we have lots of records for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's this tiny little hanging upside down very light and sized carving of a shim the gig on one of the windows there. Right, uh, okay. Only discovered in, I think, either in 97 or 2007. So very recently discovered um, but there yeah. are such a vast catalogue of them that mm. we should probably start breaking up what these are I, I, yeah looking for those p- done first. Yes. yeah <laughs> well, well which is that has to be because we could done, start cataloguing them and then as we go on we'll end up finding more and you know the, more links and the barrier, yeah. or the boundary yeah. between them will change and you know I, I think it's uh, exciting though it is yeah. it is I, and I suppose you know, this is a hard question <laughs> right? what are they <laughs> yes meaning <laughs> what, what do you think so many people have different views about what they actually mean. I think. Do you have any ideas yourself for looking? Ap- like mine is the evil eye or the apotropic yeah. aspect. I find it the most interesting, but. Um, that they were there to ward away. So it was that of. old kind of superstition within Irish, or it's an old Irish superstition that an individual might actually carry a curse okay. unbeknownst to themselves, um, uh-huh. and that if they enter the home, obviously the curse is brought in and given to the occupier of the house. Right. So the idea of actually having, and correct me if I'm wrong here now, Gary. But the idea of having the evil eye placed within high visibility on the outside mm. of a house meant that it would draw the eye of the individual to it, therefore okay. stopping the curse from entering into the home with them and being oh, passed okay. on to the individual. That's so really they're not bringing that curse in. With, and I right. think it's just, you see them with kind of... You have a, an extremely sexualized stone yeah. Uh, yeah. in Kilkay, just outside of Castle Dermot. And I uh, apologize okay. to anyone from the town if I pronounce that wrong. <laughs> um, but it could be Kilkee. There's be a lovely Kilkee, castle yeah. there. And yes. on the castle, yes. there is a male figure, yeah. shall we say, entwined with a number of beasts. Yes. And yeah. Yeah. it is locally known as the Evil Eye Stone. Okay. Um, but if you were to place it within a, a a category of what type of architecture it is it's an exhibitionist figure yes, yes, um, yes so there is a tradition of the evil eye and there's there's many different ones you have the witch symbols which you'll find mm. there's great work done over in Norfolk over in England mm. uh, on the different witch symbols and yeah. again highly Christian communities are doing this yes it, yeah, yeah. it seems to be folkish uh. in in the sense of what they're doing it's not like a the church isn't telling them to do this. Yes, they, they, yes. They, this is their own belief. Kind and, of thing. and you find it in castles in Ireland as yeah. well. You find yeah. it like these these lovely witch symbols that you'll get over in in England that they've written on so much. Yeah, you find that in castles, and there's certainly one in um, East Galway. I just can't remember the name. Mm, um, okay. It's it's round Laura somewhere there. Okay. Um, they've got these amazing carvings in the wall right. and they would be witch symbols and the idea is again the evil eye that you would draw the evil eye into this uh, complex shape and that yes. they would be drawn to us the, the curse I, doesn't travel yeah, through yeah. yeah I think what we okay. should state about Sheila and the Gigs is some of the facts that we know uh, mm. so from our work no mm. Sheila and the Gig occurs before the 11th century okay um, there may be hints mm-hmm. that a carving uh, might have come from an earlier church. Okay. But from what we can say, no classified objects as shield and the gigs come before the 11th century. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Yes, uh-huh. very much so. Yeah. Uh, we can also most most strongly say 
that they arrived with the Normans. Okay. Uh, that they occur on Norman churches and Norman castles. Okay. And then just by evidence of that, they begin to occur on Gaelic castles. Okay. And there's plenty of work out there that shows that the Gaelic lords started building stone castles, mm. kind of a mm. keeping up with the Joneses who were kind of keeping up with the strongbows, <laughs> well, if you like. Well, this is it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For so, sure. and, and you do find Shin Gates predominantly within Norman areas where okay. we do have Norman settlement. Um, yeah. And again, I, I, I do think there is a religious element of that. Uh-huh. Um, again, Niall Brady showed that there was um, in uh, Ballantubber Castle in Roscommon, very high up on one of the walls that you, yeah. you have to zoom in or climb up to actually go see this. But there is a religious carving. I think it's, it might just be an IHS, mm. but inside a Gaelic Lord's castle. Where, okay. uh, so it's kind of a... Uh, I've got enough power that I can put that religious symbol on my wall. Yeah. Um, Carriga, so Ballin the Carriga so down in Cork. Yeah. In Castle, you can or the Tower House, you can see there's a shield in the gig on the outside, but on yeah. the interior, it's like the third floor, maybe the it's, window embrasure. Yeah. There's actually this beautifully detailed crucifixion scene. Mm. Several um, gorgeous scenes. Saint, yeah. Saint Michael, I think, is there. Wow. I'd love to go back and go in again, yeah, but it's it's, it's just it's, yeah. it it kind of hits you that. These are full relief carvings, mm. yes. not hidden away, but out on public show. Yeah, sure. So if sure. your English lord from up the road came up to visit you, he was yeah. looking at your Christian yeah. ideology on the wall. Yeah. Yes. So yeah. I would argue, and mm. I'd, I'd still have to go off and find all the evidence for my <laughs> argument, but I would argue that they move from churches to the castles in okay. this manner, that the okay. Gaelic lords are moving them from something that is Gaelic Christian yeah. to putting it on their houses and going, this is us, this is the Irish. And yeah. they might have stolen it from some of the Norman castles around. So Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. It's such a kind of complex thing, isn't it? I think people often lean to oversimplify a little bit. And, so. and do you think that, it's a very hard question to answer, but do you think we've lost many through like, you know, a kind of yes. puritanical, <laughs> oh, can't be having that on the church wall kind of, thing or yes. what do you think certainly yeah. yeah i think you're in the 17th century we do have two written references one in tomb and waterford nursery where there is quite negative connotations associated with them and it's the idea okay. that they want them removed from public spaces right then that's kind of substantiated by the archaeological record insofar as we're finding them buried in graveyards we're finding okay. them being extracted from riverbeds yes so there and i mean that might go away to explain why there is such kind of sparse written evidence about them that maybe yeah. There's a period mm. of suppression for 100 to 300 years. Because, I mean, if we think about their where they're placed in tower houses or the era they're placed in, it's not really that long ago for the Irish record. No. no. I mean, the 1700s, 1800s yeah. is not that, you know, yeah. I mean, it, it shouldn't be missing yeah. from the record. No, absolutely. So it, it would explain, possibly the period of suppression would explain why it's absent or why the numbers yeah. are so fewer. Yeah. So there, there's for certainly, sure. there there's written accounts of or at least suggested written accounts in latin mm. uh from the uh synods of tomb and ossery mm. where uh, i think it's patrick cornish uses the term in his book um living shield in the gigs okay and the term that a shield in the gig could be a person yeah. um well, i don't know and and again it's something i still need to go back and actually research and find is mm. the term shield in the gig in the original text or is he implying the term mm. right. in the latin in tomb it is obscene figures but mm-hmm. being the the reformation or the counter reformation that the obscene figures are religious iconography yes yeah, so yeah. could be inferred really more than yeah. actually a, a literal um, reference to Sheila Nagig so yeah, that's something we so. have to kind of substantiate ourselves but we don't speak Latin so. <laughs> yeah <laughs> no, that, that's no, one no. of the problems we yeah. need a, lat- a Latin expert but I have spoken to some church record experts and uh-huh. Sheila Nagig doesn't pop up no. very often apart mm. from again those references Patrick Cornish gives us that we do have to follow up on yeah um, but it's, it's certainly around that time and there was a lot of folk tradition of them being buried is mm. it the one in Waterford that was meant to be with a high cross yeah so uh, it was a they found a fragment of the high cross in the churchyard uh-huh. and there was always rumour that Sheila the Gig was buried along with it or that there was Sheila the Gig on the cross yeah. um, oh. so there are counties without them Carlo yeah. has one but that one was actually taken from Offaly so there's none okay, officially okay. there okay. Uh, Waterford there's just the one in Lismore the remaining one, and then I remember there was a rumour that there was another one in the city but that it was removed and kind of the prevailing rumour was that a cleric took it and it's sitting in someone's house somewhere so we don't I okay. mean but that's a rumour a local 
local rumour that we would have heard growing up. Yeah. Um, so there probably was another one there in the city associated with one of the, the sites because we have a lot of like, I mean, walls and towers there. So it's yeah. likely yes. it would have turned up somewhere. Uh, absolutely. But, um, no, yeah, but, but the idea was that it's actually, it's there sitting in a priest's house where it's been buried somewhere. So it's, you know. The, and it, it's an interesting thing as well. So yeah. like if we went uh, to your hometown of, of Clonmel, yeah. we, yeah. we yeah. would not find two because they're in the National Museum, but mm. there are two Sheila Nagigs yeah. from the, the wall town of Clonmel. Yeah. But think of a city like Galway, yeah. where you have high, high carving. Like the yeah. the medieval carving of Galway mm-hmm. is some of the most important in Europe. Absolutely. But we don't have Sheila the gigs within the town wall. Mm. Um, it, uh, I could be corrected wrong, but I don't think there's any Sheila the gigs inside of the town wall of Kilkenny either. Another yeah. amazingly high status town yeah. where you do find beautiful carvings I remember yeah. Colin O'Driscoll showing me one that could be a potential Sheila in the gig yeah. that's been chipped away and it's on yeah. the oh, little okay. it's actually on the little garden walk or the little walk up by the cathedral towards the Heritage Council offices yes, yes so we yeah. recorded it and it's in the yeah. Sheila in the gig catalogue because there that's is a, a suggestion it yeah. might be one yeah. so that's really interesting I mean it is one of those subjects I suppose that there's so many layers to it, you know, and, and it's fantastic that you're doing this work of cataloguing and bringing them all into one place to start seeing how do they sort, you know, can you sort them into different kind of ways. And well, this is the hope, and yeah. sure, I suppose part of the objective of the project really when creating the 3D models that we just wouldn't put those in isolation online, that we yeah. would include all of the historical information and all of the bibliographies for each individual one. And that we'd maybe try and link up in some way to maybe submit those to the SMR. Yes. Um, yeah. Just so that they're in places where people can find all of that information yeah. easily. I, I have to say yeah. the, the National Museum, we recently did the survey of the, the yeah. National Museum collection. They were fantastic in, yeah. in, in allowing us to come in and record that collection and place them online for the public to see. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And also the, the National Monument Service, when yeah. we initially started recording them, mm-hmm. they were fantastic to, to start putting these things online uh-huh. to the point where we didn't even have to email them anymore that we'd go to email them and it was already online linked to the SMR record that's fantastic an image of the 3D model so when we put them online we use the SMR record Uh, for the National Museum we'll be using the National Museum record to create a connection back to that that resource yeah Yeah, so that we're not doing this in the void it's it's our our passion project yeah it doesn't belong to us yes and we're doing this for other researchers and other people interested in the heritage of shooting the gigs yeah and to kind of i I think it's a fascinating project it's such a useful resource and it's a huge legacy of work that you're putting together and what have been whether it's shooting the gigs or any of the other features that you, you've done in all your work, what's been some of the favourite carvings that are features that you've recorded? Do you have Mine a... will always be that um, Madonna in Galway for me was definitely the one we spoke about earlier on. Yeah. Probably my yeah. favourite experience actually yeah. of um, yeah. working with, with an artefact like that just because I suppose it's very easy for us because we, we always spend our time in archaeology trying to communicate the value of heritage yes, and archaeology absolutely. and sometimes yeah. it feels like you're really lecturing people or you're preaching to them and yeah. working with communities they really school you on what value really is when it yeah, comes to yeah, an yeah. artifact that maybe you might know anything about and, and you get to see people treating them with such reverence and such respect yeah and also there's a great spirituality around those kinds of items as well that it was probably the most nervous I've ever been actually recording and I came away with a migraine for two days just because of the pressure of it but they were so open and engaging and letting us doing it and then to meet some of the locals and to see just what it meant to them that we were doing the work and you know I I spoke to a lady there who got to pray with the Madonna and she was like you're doing brilliant work and I was like oh we're just recording it trying to like Mm. you know play it down she's like no no this is really valuable work to us and then she left and you kind of it was a moment of Actually, yeah, sometimes you're reminded of the value. Oh, absolutely. And in heritage, yeah, sometimes you, you forget it because you spend so long trying to find the meaning of it or define it. Yeah, and you're working in isolation a lot as well. Very and, much you know, so. It's trying to tell people it's a value and then, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's nice to have them kind of, I suppose, yeah. put you in that in, in that kind of area as well and put you in that dialogue, that's, um, that's which was, was beautiful, but very, very unnerving, I have to yeah, say. Yeah, High More stakes. unnerving than the Balakulish <laughs> figure, I can tell you. Yeah. <laughs> and how about you, Gary? Do you have uh, there, there are so Ross many Coleman. things. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it is from Roscommon. It, it is a Roscommon <laughs> artefact. So. But there are so many things that I've gotten to record yeah. and, and people allowing me into access things that 
you you usually wouldn't get to see like mm. the national museum like yeah. local museums around yeah, the country yeah. uh, allowing me to go and record like the the project we did with the hunt museum uh, in yeah, Limerick, that's a brilliant project some of the yeah. collection in there that we were able to handle and allow mm. the uh, volunteers in the community we were teaching yeah. to handle that collection that was an mm. amazing project mm-hmm. but for me it the the kind of pinnacle of my photogrammetry mm-hmm. is the Phelan O'Connor tomb from Roscommon Abbey. Oh, yeah, Simply because I had been doing photogrammetry maybe three or four years at that stage and oh. that was the best thing I'd ever produced. Yeah, and I was yeah. just amazed at, at how details, how yeah. detailed it was. Yeah. Um, Incredible. And again, it's something I've been able to give back to the community. That yes. It's it doesn't belong to me. It's heritage. Yes. I'm not going to cherish... I did that my my own time. It was a passion mm. thing to do. Yeah. But I can give that back to the community. Yeah. And that's something I kind of enjoy, to have that record that yeah, I can yeah. give to them for no cost because it yes. didn't cost me anything to record it. No, so. absolutely. That's fantastic. And if somebody wanted to find out more about your work and, and the kind of projects that you do, where's the best place for them to find you? Uh, so digitalheritageage.com uh, or you can find us on Twitter at dhh or dh yeah. underscore age Brilliant. we're on all the social media stuff Everything. generally just, <laughs> just <laughs> type in digital heritage we've got it all actually yeah Twitter. I think we are the first thing if you type in digital heritage in Google mm-hmm. uh, we're probably we one of the first anything. things that come up <laughs> that's, a, that's um, a good trait to have yeah, and, and rightly moment, so as well so. with all yeah. the work it's fantastic so yeah no it's like that's more down to the communities I think searching us than anything yeah. <laughs> so but, um, and, and what next what's the the next steps is there any particular projects coming up that you're excited about um, there's a couple of like we're we're doing a workshop in a couple of weeks in Galway yes. and this is like so we reached out to the National Monument Service mm. when the declaration the EU declaration on digitizing cultural heritage was announced and we we got this kind of great response from them that they'd yeah. love to co-host this event with us and we put out the word that we'll do a free workshop afterwards in photogrammetry and some LiDAR work. That's brilliant. It booked out in minutes. So yeah, really yeah, looking yeah, forward yeah. to that. Um, community project-wise, uh, we're doing some fantastic work down in Mount Bellevue through the... the uh, a, adopt a monument. Yeah, that, that fantastic <laughs> project. Some people I know very well. So. <laughs> Speaking of which. Um, but again, there's, there's Christy Kniff. I, like, I can't yeah. talk uh, on, on this and not mention how great Christy Kniff uh, is. He's, he's yeah. a treasure. Um, and absolutely that's, Getting to work with people like Christy just makes it worthwhile, and I Absolutely. hope I can work with him on more and more projects. Absolutely. That, that Goey Madonna project was Christy. This yes. Mount Bellevue one would be Christy as well. Absolutely. Uh, and I'm sure outside of the Shield and the Gig and me singing the praises of Roscommon for the next couple of years, yeah. we'll have more and more interesting projects coming online and working with more and more interesting communities yeah. who know far more about this than we ever will. Well, that's the thing, and it's just helping to facilitate, isn't it? Yeah. Little bits of training here and there, and, yeah. and they often lead the way after that. Yeah, and yeah. It's really fantastic. So, like, the, the, the one thing that ever stops us doing this is funding. Yes. And yeah. myself and Orla have always said that Digital Heritage Age is a passion project. Yeah. And we go and we do the Shield and the Gate project because mm. it's a passion of ours. Mm. And it would be fantastic if there was more funding for other groups and communities yeah. to engage with this more. Absolutely. But until then, yeah, we can only kind of do as much as we're able to stretch ourselves out to. So. Well, that's the thing. And it is terrific work. And it's a great, um, the connections you're building between all these different communities and seeing them kind of really taking it on and championing yeah. it, I think it's Brilliant fantastic. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you thank for you. having Thanks, us. Thanks, Neil. It's great. And that's everything from this edition of Amplify Archaeology. I'm going to be sharing links to the project and extra information on our website at abataheritage.ie, so be sure to check out the show notes there, and check out our previous editions of Amplify Archaeology. If you have the time and the inclination, we'd really love it if you could leave us a review, or better still, tell a friend. Until next time, thank you.